Today we're beginning a new book, a new epistle, a short one. It's one of the pastoral epistles um, written to a gentleman named Titus. Now, how many of you would say, I just want to see what my starting point is today with this epistle. How many of you would say you've got a pretty good sense, a basic working knowledge of the content of Paul's pastoral epistle to Titus? How many of you say, I'm I'm fairly familiar with it. I I, I know it's in the book. How many of you would say, and don't be embarrassed, uh, you know what, I really have no idea what's in it, and I'm looking forward to you telling me. Raise your hand, I don't really know. Thank you, thank you guys for your honesty, I appreciate that. Let me set the stage just for a moment, because I think it's important, since the title is in his name, let's talk about who Titus is just for a sec. Titus was one of Paul's close companions. Now, he doesn't seem to have, either historically or or biblically, the same closeness of relationship as tight as, say, Timothy was. Um, To Titus, Paul gives advice and counsel. To Timothy, Paul had had a sense of responsibility for his development and the oversight. But Titus is a unique character nonetheless. Historically, some of the ancient writings suggest that Titus was or may have been Luke's brother. And that would explain, at least in some part, why a central character in the early development of the church doesn't show up by name in the book of Acts. Because, well, Luke being the author of that book, presumably would not want to give too much attention to his own brother. But we don't know that for sure, and Scripture doesn't say What we do know is by the time we see uh, Paul's writings, particularly his second letter to the Corinthians, we see Titus is a fairly significant figure in the early church and the ministry of the gospel there, the spread of the church to many different places. When we come to this particular letter, however, we're at the end, near the end, I'll say, of Paul's life and ministry. If we tally up the events in his life and look at the history of it, Paul is probably about two years away from being beheaded when he writes this epistle to Titus. Titus was hand-selected by the Apostle Paul to do a significant work. When you look at Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul tells Timothy, charges him, I want you to put in order. Put in order. So it suggests that there are some things in this early church in and on the island of Crete that were out of place, that needed to be fixed. It's a young church. It's still a relatively new church. The, The fact that there's a church at all on the island of Crete at this time is a miracle. At one point, Crete and the Cretan culture was the center of what is probably the oldest culture in all of Europe, and that was the Minoan culture. By the time of the Apostle Paul, the Cretans had just such a, I don't even know the right word, maybe smorgasbord would be the right word, of religion, religious expression. They had emperor worship, Claudius, Augustus, Some worshipped Egyptian gods, Osiris and others. Zeus held prominence there. You find today even shrines to Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. Just such a variety of gods and no gods. It was an odd mix. In, In fact, history records or refers to Crete as civilization's backwater in the first century. And yet, and yet, because God is good, because... God is merciful, because God is loving, because God in his sovereignty has the ability to accomplish his purposes. A church is birthed there. It's amazing. This is a study I would just encourage you on your own. If you want something that will build your faith and will also be interesting to you historically, look at how rapidly the early church spread. Look at how it took root and how it began to grow. 
and how people came to Christ and churches just began to sprout up everywhere. And the reason I tell you that is not just because it's historically interesting, but it is also encouraging to us today because I think, I think, I perceive that, that one of the challenges to the contemporary church, the modern church, is this sort of innate cynicism that causes us to wonder, even if we don't express it out loud, can we still accomplish this purpose? Do people still want to hear? Does the gospel still work? We may not say those things, but we act as if that's how we believe. Can it still take root in hard places? Can it still grow up in dark places? Can it still penetrate cultures that are antagonistic towards it, even, even our own? And the answer is yes. And what we see on the island of Crete shows us that. We see that God's word is true, and truth prevails. We see the power of God's spirit at work on the island of Crete. We see the purposes of God in the church. The church not ancillary to, not an auxiliary to God's kingdom, not just a tool that God uses, but the end of God's purposes in this world. He establishes his church and what that church ought to look like. We see all of this in Crete. And one other fact which I failed to mention, which also helps us understand why Crete and the story of Titus is critical for us today, they were infamous for their immorality. You probably heard the term Cretan in a derogatory sense. Those Cretans, those Cretans, those people that would do anything, those people that don't value life, those people that don't value morals, those people that don't value other people, those Cretans, that's how they were referred to. And again, then you have this church developing there. And somehow, even in the early stages of this church, it had begun to go off the tracks. And one of the challenges that we see in that first century church surely mirrors challenges we see in the 21st century one. Is that somehow as grace was introduced to them, the dangerous doctrine of grace, God's incredible, infinite even, ability to forgive all sin, God's willingness, God's desire, his activity in bringing all sorts of people to him, even those that we would think are the farthest from him, the unsavable ones, and he does by his grace. The fact that God's grace is so much greater than our sin, when this dangerous doctrine of grace was introduced, some of those new believers began to take it, misunderstand it, and misapply it to the point where they thought God's grace gave them license to do whatever they want. I'm forgiven. My sins have been taken away. One plus one equals three, and I get to do whatever I want now. But that's not the gospel. Paul spent so much of his ministry time not only establishing a bulkhead for the gospel in places like the island of Crete, but then defending it and teaching its proper application once Christians were growing up in those places what does it really mean to follow christ that we've been set free from sin and death so why would we go back to that again why would we live that way again so paul's writing to titus about the establishment of a normal christian church the building up of normal christians now my challenge to you over these next several weeks as we go through the book of titus is i want to challenge you to live a normal christian life now, if that sounds like a, a slight challenge, a little challenge, then perhaps we're misunderstanding the word normal. I'm not saying I want to challenge you to live an ordinary life or a commonplace life or even a typical life of those who claim to be Christian. 
I want to challenge you from the book of Titus to live a normal Christian life. One that has a norm. One that has a line. One that has a standard. One that has a plan and a purpose. One that is established by God himself. This is how we ought to live if we're in Christ. That's, that's what's normal. Some of you are probably familiar with the book by Watchman Nee by the same title, The Normal Christian Life. Now, this is not a derivative of that book. I'm really honestly not even terribly familiar with it. It's been quite a while since I've even looked at it. But I know in the beginning of that book, in the first couple of pages, he asked this question, what is the normal Christian life? What is it? Not the one that we're living today. Not the, not the typical 21st century Americanized pseudo-Christian life. What's the biblically normal life? I mean, if you were sitting here today in some weird sort of way, if it were possible, that we could just suspend the laws of time for a moment, and we could import a handful of believers, maybe even a couple of apostles to sit among us, or to sit in your small group gathering this morning, or to be in our worship service this morning, hear the scriptures read, hear the message taught, would it resonate with them that we believe the same things? That we teach the same things? that we live the same things, that we act in the same way, that we see God in the same way? Or would it be something very, very different to them, even, even unrecognizable? Well, that's the challenge of normal Christian life. So Watchman Nee said, what is a normal Christian life? We'll do well at the outset to ponder this question. The object of my book is to show that it is something very different from the life of the average Christian. He said the Apostle Paul gives us his own definition of the Christian life in, Gal in Galatians 2.20. What a great verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Therefore, this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Crucified with Christ. My life is no longer my own, but Christ. The life I am living now is because of and therefore for the purpose of Christ. We can summarize this normal Christian life like this. I live no longer the old life. I live the Christ life. Now, what does that look like? That's what I want to pray about this morning. Let's pray. Father, prick our hearts and our consciences. Challenge our thinking and patterns of belief and behavior. Shake us up from what's been routine, typical, regular, ordinary, average, commonplace. Revive us today, Father, I pray, with a sense of what's normal biblically, what the Christian life is supposed to look like, how we're supposed to live it, what the effects of that normal Christian life are, Father, particularly for the times in which we live today. Father, your word is, is timeless. I pray that we would believe that and trust it. And it speaks to every person in every place at every time on this grand story that you have written. And so, Father, for the times in which we live, which are not a surprise to you, which are not unknown to you, and the challenges that are coming our way, which are certainly seen by you already, Father, prep us to live a life that's right, that's normal, that's biblical, that follows the line of real Christianity. So, Father, speak to us, teach us, and may we be obedient in our responses. Father, make our church more like a normal one. Make our families more normally Christian. Make my life and the lives of all believers here more normal, more like Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
We'll start in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, because that's a good place to start. Sounds like just an introduction. You know, the sort of thing that in your personal Bible study, if you're like me, sometimes you might be tempted to just read that real quickly and get to the meat of things. What's the heart of the letter? And skip over the introduction. But of all the letters that Paul wrote, this probably has the meatiest intro, with perhaps the exception of maybe Romans. But consider these introductory words, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's talk about Paul just for a moment. I mean, this is a guy we know, we're pretty familiar with Paul, but listen to how Paul describes himself just for a moment. The contrast here in that interest, introductory statement is very intentional and it's very telling. Because Paul uses two terms that seem at face value very different from each other, even opposite from each other. First of all, Paul calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. If we're rendering these words properly, we're going to say what Paul said. Paul said, my existence, my identity is summed up in this. I'm a slave of Christ. I once was a slave of a different slave master. I was a slave of my own sin, my own desires, my own deceptions. I lived in the kingdom of darkness. Now, I was a zealous member of that kingdom. I, I did what I thought was right with my whole heart. I mean, Paul is the example, the shining, tragic example of someone who thinks they're living their life well, they're doing what they're supposed to do, they're, they're following the norms of their culture and times, but to the nth degree. I mean, Paul was a... Jew and a Jew of the Jews. He was a rabbi and a teacher of the rabbis. He, he was zealous for what he thought was right, and he pressed it to the end, but he was so wrong. I mean, again, the tragic, most tragic example probably we see in Scripture of somebody who will live their whole life thinking, I'm doing life the way it's supposed to be done, only to find out how tragically wrong they were. Thank God for his mercy that before Paul could meet his end, he met his Savior. And God revealed himself to him in the person of Christ and Paul's heart was changed and his eyes were opened, both figuratively and literally, and he became a follower of Christ. And there was a complete reversal of his life's purpose to the point where he says, now I'm a slave of Christ. I mean, that's someone who, who met Jesus as he is. That's someone who didn't see Jesus as just a possible, beneficial life partner. Someone who might help me in a time of trouble. Someone who might give me some things I need. Uh, somebody who can be there just in case. I'll put him on the wall on a shelf. I'll break the glass in case I need it. And just in case I'm wrong, I lose nothing. But if I'm right, hey, I get to go to heaven. He never saw Jesus that way. He saw Jesus as the sovereign king. The one who has the right of rule over everyone and everything. The one who will one day stand and all will see him and know him and every knee will bow. And he said, in the face of this Jesus, what else can I be but a slave to him? Whatever he wants, I'll do. Wherever he tells me to go, I'm going to go. And at whatever cost it costs me, I'm going to consider the reward of my king will make it worth it. But at the same time, he said, I'm a slave. I'm also an apostle. I'm an apostle of Jesus. I'm a spokesperson of the Most High God. I am His representative here. Not His only one, but one of them. I'm on a plane, I'm on a level with Peter and James and John. I am among that elite group of people who have been so blessed by the goodness of God that I get to be with Him and see Him and know Him and be instructed by Him personally. 
What a high calling I have. And so it's the both and. And it speaks to our existence as Christians. I mean, what is our ultimate identity? If those look like extremes to, to, to us, slave, whatever you want from me, my highest calling, representative of Christ, if those look like extremes to us, it's because we live in this abnormal middle where Jesus isn't that important and we're not that insignificant. Jesus doesn't have that kind of authority, nor does he have that kind of worth to us. You see, but that's normal Christianity. Normal Christianity says, you're the sovereign king of my life. You're not my life partner. You're not my good friend. You're not my constant companion. Yes, you're those things, but so much more. You're the king of kings and lord of lords. Not just in the future tense. You are that to me now. What do you want from me? I'm your slave. But also, I'm your representative. What a high calling that is. What a privilege that is. That as we walk this earth, we are like the apostle Paul said. And he shared this with Christians, 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are, you are ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal through you. Therefore, we urge you to be reconciled to God. That's who you are. That's your, that's your primary identity. It also speaks to your primary purpose. I'm not talking about your job. I'm not talking about your sense of calling. I'm not talking about your occupation. I'm talking about your purpose. Primary purpose. Represent Christ. Represent Christ. There's a kingdom coming. There's a king returning. There's an invitation now even into that kingdom. So represent Christ. Let people see Christ in you. Speak what he would speak. Do what he would do. Live like he would live. Put him on display. Make known his worth, his glory. Declare the infinite worth of Christ in how you speak, how you live, for the good of all those people around you. This is who we are. And then I thought of this question just for a moment. Just, it just sort of grabbed me this week. This is personal to me. So you decide how this fits for you in the text. I thought of his reference to Titus. And for some reason, these words just jumped off the page to me. He said, my true child in a common faith. Titus was not his physical offspring, right? We know this. And yet he called him my true child. And I wonder how many of us in this room will be faithful enough to Christ, obedient enough to his commands, diligent enough to be his representative, bold enough to speak the truth that we might ourselves have some true children in the faith. Somebody that we could say, God, by your grace, you use my life, my opportunities, my experience, my words of your truth. You use me as your instrument to lead that person to you so that I can say that's my child in our common faith. And, and it, this calls me to ask this question for myself and, and for you. Who am I here for? Have you considered who you might be here for? Now, obviously, if, if that answer is saying, oh, man, I don't know, I need to think about that. How many of you in this room are parents? All the parents, raise your hand just for a second. Okay, I'm going to hold your hands up. Um, let me include, because you are too, in case you didn't raise your hand. Grandparents, I'm including you, so make sure your hands are going up also. Now, your answer to who I'm here for ought to be a parent. That, that's your first who might, you can put them down now. Thanks, guys. Sorry, you guys in the front can't see that everybody behind you has already put theirs down. I should have just left y'all hanging and see how long it would go. No, no, keep them up. Your first who I'm here for is a parent, right? You get it. That was a play on words. A parent. Your kids, that's, man, they might be not only your 
children of the flesh, in the flesh, truly, but your children in Christ. There's your mission field right there. There's your Jerusalem. But who else? You're not where you are by an accident. You don't have what you have by circumstance. God put you there. Who are you here for? Who are you here for? Who does God want to use you for, for the sake of? And I love that statement. This is who I am. This is what I do. And, man, there's a, there's a, there's a Titus out there for me. Now let's talk about what Paul's calling was. I included the verses in your notes. You can quickly circle something. Everything that God was going to use Paul for was centered around one particular activity. Now, this may or may not be your particular activity, but for Paul, it was this, through the preaching which I have been entrusted. Through the preaching which I have been entrusted. Now, before you dismiss that statement and say, well, good, because that's not me. I'm not a preacher. I, that's not my thing. It's not my calling, not my desire. Um, I don't have that responsibility. Paul's application of that responsibility was unique. He was an apostle. He was an evangelist. He was a church planter. He, he was a preacher of the gospel. But every Christian is to be a communicator of the gospel. You may not do it in a public square forum. You may not do it from a pulpit. You may not do it from a recognized position. But God has commissioned you. He's given you the authority to, the responsibility for, the ability to carry out making him known. That, that's what you do. So in that sense, you may not do it like Paul or where Paul did or to the scope Paul did it or even with the effect Paul did it, but it doesn't mean as a Christian you're not making him known verbally to talk about him. But he says, this is the purpose that God has given me through preaching. So I want to give you just a quick lesson on what preaching ought to be accomplishing, the necessary effects of gospel preaching. Because he's talking about what God has given him to do. He's entrusted it to him. And, of course, this is a baton he's also handing over to Titus. Well, what should gospel preaching accomplish? What will it accomplish by the power of God? It's what we've seen all through the book of Acts. It's what we've seen through the development of the early church through so many places and so many cultures. Number one, gospel preaching enables faith. It enables faith. This is how God draws people to himself. It's the plan that God has chosen. You know, there's a real challenge today towards gospel preaching because our, our modern culture, I mean, we have so much technology now. There's so many things we can do that preachers of a previous generation could not have even imagined. I don't even have to write a sermon anymore. I could put in a few key words and do chat, uh, GPI or AI or whatever, and I could come up with one for you. Um, we just write it out. I, I could pull up a video. Uh, you could download, you could access excellent preaching from places all over the the globe today, I mean, there's so many resources. There's so many ways. And, and so there seems to be this, this movement that says what you're doing today and what I'm trying to do with you today is no longer effective. You sitting in a chair, me speaking to you, you hearing. But yet the Bible says it is through this method, this, this foolishness of the proclamation of the gospel that God accomplishes his purposes. And it enables faith, it births faith. He says, my purpose is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And don't get all hung up on the word elect. He's not saying this. He's not saying for those that God is going to save, however he chooses to save them, with or without me, my purpose now is to speak to those saved. No. It's for the faith of the elect. Those that God is calling, those that God 
as he wrote, as Paul wrote in Ephesians, chosen before the foundations of the earth, far beyond my scope of understanding, those that God will draw to himself, here's how he's going to do it. He's going to do it through the preaching of the gospel. And so my purpose is for that faith. I'm not preaching into the void. I'm not preaching into the chasm. I'm not preaching hoping maybe somehow, some way, you might, God, do something with this. One hand behind my back, fingers crossed. I hope someone will hear this. I hope someone will respond to it. I'm preaching for the sake of the elect because I know God is going to use the preaching of his word to draw people to himself. That's the promise. Number two, it also endows reason. It endows reason. We're preaching the word with, with reason. If you're not a Christian yet, and I hope you and I can have a conversation about that at some point. If not today, sometime soon. I hope we can talk about where you stand with God and what you believe or don't believe. But I want you to know, we're never going to challenge you. No one that's going to be teaching you here from this pulpit is going to challenge you to believe something that's just fanciful. We're never going to say, just take our word for it. We're not going to use phrases like blind faith. We're going to tell you the reasonable cause for faith. We're going to tell you that which is true. We're going to tell you that which is self-evident. We're going to show you that the things you're already thinking the things that are, you're already stirred up to see, the, the things that are already evident in the world all around you is only the beginning stage of God's revelation. He's going to take that and now lead you to deeper and deeper understanding. This is who I am. And this is what I want from you. This is who you are. This is my plan and purpose. It's all reasonable. It's reason. Faith and reason are not at odds. Sturdy, stable, persevering faith is reasonable, rational faith. If you're a Christian and have been so for some time, your faith ought to be growing stronger and stronger and stronger, not just because of your feelings and experiences, because of your understanding of truth, because you've understood God better, because you've studied more and thought more and lived more and experienced more too, yes, for sure, but because you understand better, there's reason. And when you combine that faith and reason, you have the assurance of hope. The gospel gives hope. Now listen, for, for time's sake... For time's sake, I, don't, I can't go into all the, the bizarro religious beliefs of every group that would have been represented on the island of Crete. But I can, I can narrow down all of them into this category. Ultimately, every one of them is hopeless. Hopeless. Now, it's interesting, and you'll see in the book of Titus, Paul will use the, the word Savior with, with significant frequency. And there's a reason for that, because the Greeks refer to their gods as their saviors. Their so-called gods were their saviors. So Paul is clearly making a point in the writing to Titus. There's only one savior, and it's the Lord Jesus. He's the only true savior. But when I say they're hopeless, I say because none of them could ever know for sure that they had satisfied the demands of their so-called saviors. If they lived up to the expectations of their so-called saviors, if they satisfy their expectations of them if they ever made it they could never know for sure it's ultimately hopeless what happens after i die i don't know i can't say for sure only in christ can we have hope grounded confidence not i hope so i put a little asterisk there not i hope so but the confident assurance that what we've been taught is true and i can stake my life on this and we see the evidence of this sort of hope later on that I'll die for this if I have to. Whatever it takes. And all of this, we have assurance of our faith. 
We have assurance of what we believe is true. We have assurance of our eternal hope in as much as we have this word. And I want you to write this down because we're going to spend some time on this in coming weeks. Godliness. Godliness. Over 25 years of, of pastoral ministry, one of the questions that comes to me the most or has come to me the most over those years is how can I have assurance? What is the, what is the real ground of my assurance? And we're typically looking in one of these areas. Um, is this rational enough? Give me, give me some facts so I can know for sure. G- give me some facts. I, I, need more, I need more information if I'm going to be certain. Or h- how do I have more faith? Because I struggle sometimes with, with doubt and you know, my emotions wave, waver. And, and you know, how do I get more faith? How do I trust things I don't understand or don't know or can't know, can't see? Typically assurance, we're looking for assurance even as believers I'm talking about or specifically as believers, help me grow my faith or help me grow my understanding. And you know what we neglect? Our godliness. And I'm going to make a statement here. And I'm not saying it's a perfect statement or there aren't any exceptions, though I know of none. I've never met a godly person. I've never met a person who claims to be Christian who lives a godly life that doesn't have assurance. I've never met a godly person who struggles with eternal hope. I don't think those people exist. I think this godliness is the means to our assurance. And you can't have truth, real truth, without godliness. Listen to what he says again. He says, I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of the elect, their knowledge of the truth, so their faith and their knowledge, which accords with godliness. Accords with godliness. Godliness works in perfect rhythm with faith and reason. Because as I believe these things to be true and I search these things out for myself and I know them with my mind, they affect necessarily how I live. And that was a problem in Crete. You had people who said that they were believers, but you could not find any evidence of Christianity in how they conducted their lives in their homes, how they conducted their lives in their businesses, how they conducted their lives in their community. And that is the same problem we have with so much of so-called Christianity today. I believe this stuff. Well, sure, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe this about Jesus. Show it to me. Show me what you believe. Show me how that's what you're passionate about because that's what you talk about. Show me that that's what you're concerned about because you live by what God says. You care about his commands. Show me that this is what you're about. This is the challenge of normal Christianity. Show me your life with godliness. I'll know what you believe. I'll know what you believe to be true about God. I'll know where your faith is by your life. Live this out. So, back to the theme of hope, which is the theme of today's message, by the way. The normal Christian life is a hopeful life. It's a life infused with hope. Where does that hope come from? Again, making sure we got our terms right. Make sure you guys are with me. When I say hope, I'm not saying, man, I'm really counting on this to be true. I, I hope I'm not wrong about this. Let's hope this plays out the way we think. No, hope, grounded assurance, rooted, tethered assurance. Where does that come from? Where does it come from? Listen to what Paul said to Titus in this brief but powerful introduction about the ground of our hope, the rock-solid, immovable, unshakable foundation of all hope. First of all, it's this. It's God's immutable nature. The foundation of my hope is God himself, And Paul says this, God, did you catch this? God, who never lies. Why does God never lie? 
You might say because, well, God is perfect, so if he's perfect, he, he won't lie. Because lying would be imperfect, lying would be a sin. And, and that's true to a degree. To the degree that that's true, it's true. But there's more to it. God cannot lie. God is forever true to who God is. God is never contrary to God. God's nature is immutable. That means it's unchanging. He'll never be different than who he is. And who he is will always determine what he does. It'll always be so, always has been so. As God reveals himself to be, so he is. God is always consistent with his own nature and character, and his nature and character is perfect. He does not lie. He cannot lie. If he promises, us th- if he promises this to us, then we count on it, not because the words of the promise are appealing to us, but because we believe in a God who's immutable. He cannot lie. We trust him. And so the first grounding of our hope is God himself. And then from God, we have God's eternal and decisive decree. When Paul uses the term the elect, he's saying, listen, in ways you can't understand, and I'm not going into detail in this epistle with them, with you. You can read about this in the larger letter I wrote to the Romans. You can read about it in what I wrote to the Ephesians. But the concept is this, in a way that you can't understand, before you were ever born, before the foundations of the earth, God had an eternal and decisive decree. He said, this will be. There will be a people. When Jesus died on the cross, he was saving a people, a people that would be called the church, a people that in the New Testament the apostles refer to as the elect of God. These were the the people of God that he sent his son to save, and he gave them to his son as a bride called the church to enjoy him forever. How do we know that God is going to prevail? How do we know that missions will, will work? How do we know that gospel conversations will have fruit? Because of God's eternal and decisive decree over this, God is sovereign. We are not. And then the foundation is on Christ. On Christ. Christ, Jesus, our Savior, he said. He said, God promised this before the ages began. And at the proper time, he manifested in his word through the preaching which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, It's our Savior, the effective work of redemption through our Savior. This is our assurance. So when Paul is preaching Jesus, what did he preach? What was the foundation of Paul's preaching everywhere? What did he say was the foundation of his preaching? Christ and Christ crucified. He preached the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We see this in his writings to the Corinthians. This which I have received, I have also passed down to you. Christ crucified and raised. This is the effective work. When I say effective, I mean this accomplished the purpose of God's eternal decree. How can anybody be saved? Because Jesus died for the, for the sins of sinners. How will anybody have peace with God? Because we have the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith. Why do we have hope then? God doesn't change. God determined this to be so. God enabled it, enacted it through the work of Christ. That work is effective for the salvation of all who believe. That is our root of salvation. That is our grounding in hope. That's unshakable. That won't change. Now, for those of you thinking that just sounds like remedial Christianity, I get all that. How is that different? Well, that sort of hope, that sort of eternal weight of hope ought to have some impact on how you live every day. This ought to show up. If if those things are true of you, if you believe in that high of a view of God, 
If you believe in that scope and sense of God's sovereignty, if you believe that Jesus, when he died on the cross and rose again, did in fact accomplish the work for which he was sent, how should that hope affect what you do and how you think today? I'm going to give you these by statement and explain just with brevity perhaps. I can be confident and not cynical about the future because of this eternal hope. There's so much cynicism today. So much cynicism today. Some of you have watched this. It's not a religious program, but I encourage every parent, grandparent to watch it. Watched it last night. Our family, we watched it sitting on the couch. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's a short documentary by Matt Walsh entitled, What is a Woman? It speaks to some of the cultural craziness of our day. And as I was watching it, I was moved emotionally all, really all over the map. There's some humorous points where you want to laugh a little bit at the insanity of people. There are some points that make you angry, and there's some points that just leave you with a sense of tragedy. Tragedy. How did we get here, and how did we get here so quickly? How did our culture become so fundamentally broken? How did we abandon things that were accepted by every human being over the history of the world up until, well, just now? And I would encourage you to watch it. But when I watch those things, there's a part of me that just wants to get so cynical. We're seeing the breakdown of morality everywhere. On, on every level, every institution. I mean, we're in the midst of a month now meant to celebrate the ultimate affront to God and His creation. We call it pride, which unironically is the very sin that had Satan cast out of heaven, and we celebrate this now. It really is aptly named because it's human pride against the very creation of God. In the words of Michael Horton, we're going against the very grain of God, the very grain of creation and nature itself, and we celebrate it with a fist in the face of God, do something with us. We see more and more open affronts to who God is, more and more open mockery. God, touch us if you can. And this is the culture that we live. We live in a Cretan culture. Make no mistake about it. And if you're not careful, you'll fall into the same trap that I find myself sometimes ensnared by. Cynicism, frustration. But if you have an ultimate hope and an ultimate victor and an ultimate promise being fulfilled in Christ, you can... If your mind and heart's in the right spot and you're living faithfully to this king, you can be confident about the future. Christians ought to be hopeful about the future because of Christ. We aren't defeated. We don't live in defeat. We will not be defeated. And as many attacks come against the church, and they, you know, sometimes I have to filter what I'm saying through the feedback I get from like my own kids and family. It's like, Dad, you're saying the same things over and over. Okay, I get it. That's what's, that's what's in my wheelhouse right now. But I feel like part of my assignment is to prepare the church for the, the tide that's coming our way, the season that's coming our way. And I think in these next several months, you're going to be surprised at pastors and church leaders that are going to be speaking out in ways that you thought, wow, them too? They're abandoning the faith too? They're abandoning the clear teachings of Scripture too? They're abandoning Romans 1 too? You're going to be surprised. The tide is coming, and it's not just from without, it's from within as well. And how will we stand? We have to be confident, not cynical. Number two, we can speak confidently and boldly knowing that the truth will be vindicated. See, that's the thing, and I want you younger people to hear that today, too. It's hard to speak the truth today. In fact, some would say it's impossible because you're going to get censored. You're going to get canceled. You're going to lose your opportunity. I, I saw um, a story this week, a high school senior not allowed to graduate with his class because he made this statement that seems apparently true to everyone, again, in history up until now, that 
Men are men and women are women. And there's a difference between the two, genetically, biologically. So they wouldn't let him graduate. We see this sort of thing happening everywhere. We can't speak obvious truth now. No, listen, I'm telling you, and here's what I want you to hear. You can speak confidently and boldly. Why? Because the truth will be vindicated. There's only, there's only truth. There's not your truth, my truth. God establishes truth. It's rooted in who he is and what he has said and done, what he's made. And one day, hang in there. You're on the right side of it. It'll be worth it. Number three, you can live wisely and purposefully with eternal hope. Because you know this, Christ is going to appear. And I just put in parentheses, perhaps soon. Perhaps soon. So live purposefully. You know, if you hold these things to be true, I mean, think about Paul's life. Again, we hold him up as such an extreme example that we just dismiss it as unfollowable. And yet Paul said to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. Live, live this life. This is the normal Christian life. I'm saying live with some purpose here. Live with a sense of eternity here. Because these things are true. Fourthly, I would challenge you to endure difficulty and hardship. It's going to be worth it all. And if that's a recurring message you hear from me, so be it, until it sticks. I suspect there will come a time where some of the things that we say, some of the things we believe, some of the things we even sing will be, will be protested. I mean, I'm envisioning that day that even in Dothan, Alabama, I'm going to walk out after Sunday service to protesters or to someone holding a microphone with cameras wanting to interview me about the hate speech I just gave. But are you willing to endure difficulty and hardship because Christ is worth it. See, I think, I fear that too many Christians will de decide that comfort, lack of conflict in this world will be more, worth more to them functionally than the reward of Christ. Don't let that be you. But ultimately, I want this. I think of how Paul wrote for the joy of those people who believed his message. If we've got this eternal hope, we can live joyfully. That doesn't mean that we live giddily, doesn't mean everything is all jolly. Doesn't mean we're always laughing and having fun. It's not always that. But there ought to be a sense of, of immovable joy in us that's not connected to circumstances or the immediate conditions of my life because I'm focused on eternal joy. I mean, I mean this, is, this is mine. This is my sure reward. This is what's coming. This will be what's happening. This is what God is doing. God will validate truth he will vindicate the gospel he will reveal himself in christ this is coming we can be true of this so this is my prayer for you today my prayer for you is ephesians chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 and i want to pray this as a prayer would you bow with me as i pray this prayer would you pray this for yourself for your neighbor for the people in your row for your family for your friends for your mission field, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I pray, Father, that all who hear will know what is the hope of your calling. What are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints? And what is your power, the surpassing greatness of your power toward us who believe? Father, I pray you would do that today. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we would know. Father, so that we would see, so that we would understand, so that we would want 
so that we would aspire to, so that we would take hold of, so that we would trust in, so that we would live for. And Father, work this great power in us who believe, the ability to have hope. Or this world may do many things to us, but Father, it cannot take away our hope. It cannot take away our hope. Our hope is unassailable. It's untouchable. It is rooted in you. Father, we thank you for that. So, Father, for those of us who might tend towards cynicism, frustration, anger, despair, Father, may we be a hopeful people. And not only hopeful in and for ourselves, but hopeful for the sake of others. So many living in despair, so many living in frustration, so many that have made themselves the enemies of Christ, but yet, Father, it's hopelessness that drives them. Father, may we be beacons always, messengers constantly, practitioners visibly of hope. May we be a hopeful people. Father, use us to spread the message of your hope. Lord, I thank you for your great love for us, your mercy towards us, your willingness to save your rebel children, to return us to you, to forgive us, to grant us the righteousness of Christ, to put your spirit in us, to work your mighty power in us, to secure for us an eternal home, treasure, and reward, that we get to be with you, that we get to see you, that we are yours and will always be so. Lord, that's our hope. Lord, for every believer in this room and everyone who hears, Father, may we live according to it. Listen, as you pray what God would have you to do, what response is right to the words you've heard today, let me speak just a moment to anybody in this room who's not a believer yet. I believe God created the human soul. And I believe intrinsic to his creation of every soul is the need for hope, the desire for it. Give me something I can cling to. Give me something that's worth everything. Give me something I can live for. Give me something I, I, I can long for, something I can, something I can be confident in when everything around me is a mess. It's hope. Hope is for what you were made, and that hope is found in God and God alone. Turn from sin. Turn from rebellion against God. Turn from unbelief. Turn to the one who made you knows you best. Turn to the one who's willing to show mercy to you and forgive you of your sins against him. If you'll be, but repent, confess, and run to him. Turn to the one who is the king of everything and everywhere and will one day reveal that kingdom in such unavoidable, undeniable ways that everyone will bow. Everyone will have to. Some will bow as sons and daughters celebrating their king, ready to be with him forever. Some will bow in defeat on the cusp of eternal judgment. Which is it going to be for you? Look, trust in him. There's hope there. It's not here. There's no hope to be found here. It's in Christ. Father, may we trust you. May we turn to you. May we love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.